Hello, you're listening to Get Mouthy, the podcast from the Head and Neck Cancer Foundation. I'm Michelle Vickers. Join me as I chat with some of the most interesting people I know who are all linked in one way or another in the fight against head and neck cancers, either personally or professionally. So today I'm with Sir Frederick Harvey Bathurst, who is our chairman and founder of the Head and Neck Cancer Foundation. Thank you so much for coming on, Frederick, because I know you are an incredibly busy man. I'm delighted to help and anything I can do to promote the charity and awareness, I'd be delighted to, to, to assist with. Fantastic. So many of our listeners might not know actually how or why the charity was founded. So what was the driving force for you behind launching the Head and Neck Cancer Foundation? Um, the driving force resulted initially from Mo- Professor Mark McGurk operating on my father back in 1995. And then many years later, um, after Mark and his family become great friends of ours for all their support um, and skill uh, that they provided to us as a family, we were fishing together. And I happened to make a chance remark to Mark along the lines of, if I were to have the same cancer as my father, would I also be equally disfigured? It is something which I think concerns all of us whose parents Mm. have had cancer, whether it's inheritable, um, particularly as I have zero knowledge of such things. Mm. And Mark answered, no, so long as you catch it quick before I retire. And (laughs) on asking him why that was the case, he said he'd pioneered a new type of treatment, which is far less invasive, the form of surgery. And um, my next question was a very obvious one. Well, who else knows about it? To which the answer was really pretty well nobody. And then uh, my next question was, why not? And the answer was straightforward uh, and uh, um, stemmed around the difficulty and expense of training other surgeons in the skill Mm. and I said what do we need to do to to rectify that and that was the beginnings of the creation of the charity. Wow so you said that um, Mark Professor Mark McGurk um, operated on your father in 95 I think you said so what what age was he when he was diagnosed? So my father would have been about 57 something about age 57 58 yeah. And he was a fit, well man. He didn't smoke, um, really didn't drink very much, overweight, but um, didn't drink, didn't smoke. So yeah. he wasn't a candidate for those no. sort of things. Because I didn't realise actually he was so young because the, the incident rates for head and neck cancer um, in the UK are highest between the age of 70 and 74. I kind of assumed your dad was in that bracket when this happened. But he no, was actually relatively young. Yes, absolutely. And, and sort of well, well in every other respect. Yeah. So how did he how did he come to be diagnosed? What happened that led to him having this diagnosis? His diagnosis was immediate um, on attending a routine visit to the dentist. But he was working exceptionally hard. I mean, a real worker. So he was always under intense stress. So he put down his mouth, mouth ulcers to being exactly that mouth ulcers. Yeah. Um, but the moment the dentist that saw in his mouth it was abundantly clear that it was far more than a mouth ulcer so that was why he went to uh, he went to the to the the dentist in the first place he was taken straight from the dentist by ambulance to hospital wow and i should say that um recurring or long-lasting um mouth ulcers of any kind are a a warning and to any of our listeners who i mean i know you've probably all heard this before but you know, anything like that that's staying around in your mouth or that is unusual or that is not going away, you do need to go um, and see either your dentist, 
but your doctor as well you could go to either of those two um and pursue it if they say it's just ulcers and it's still not going away go back and pursue it would be um our advice um and because you know 46 percent of oral cavity cancer is actually preventable um so i think we just need to be mindful of that of catching things early before it gets to that that point you know and and um as Mark always says, being part of the diagnostic team yourself, actually just being able to be part of that journey rather than it happening to you as it happened to your dad. So when did he actually pass from this? When, when did it happen? Did he have uh, it for? And... He, well, he had the, had the cancer in 1995. I'd also add just to that point, um, Michelle, which I think is a really important point you've made about the early diagnosis. It's not like cancer in many other parts of the body, yeah. which you can chop out with a, with a, with a good safety margin and you mm. can hide the scars and the uh, and the horrors of it on the mm. face it really is your window to the world and there are so many important structures to the face Definitely. that you really do want to catch it early yeah. um so um my father lived with it for 19 years afterwards wow. but mark had cut it out because mark's yeah. approach was not to 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 patch his approach was to save a life yeah and that meant very very radical surgery at yeah. the time and we've spoken about this before in previous podcasts, how um, patients are so pleased and happy and surgeons are so pleased and happy to be able to say you have, you no longer have cancer. But one of the things that we focus on is the impact of that afterwards, the impact of possibly losing your jaw, parts of your jaw, losing salivary glands, even which may not be cosmetic, but um is actually it has a profound effect um, on on survivors uh, of oral cancers. Um, so, what what type of man was he? What was he like before cancer? You know, what was um, he like before that? Uh, highly intelligent, uh, very kind, but tough. Didn't suffer fools. Um, full of self conscious uh, self confidence, which was deserved self confidence. Um, and I think actually that was enormously helpful and instrumental in his survival uh, th thereafter, in the mm. sense that he was horrifically disfigured. He lost his jawbone in its entirety. Um, like, did that happen straight away? Yes, his entire oh, wow. jaw was removed um, and rebuilt from the bone in his leg. Yeah. Uh, and he also lost the roof of his mouth and he also lost three quarters of his tongue. Wow. So it was very, very dramatic surgery that he had but I think the combination of his um, uh, immense uh, physical and mental strength plus a really supportive and loving family yeah. didn't deter him from going out in public uh, to attending the theatre all the things that he loved doing but it the effect was still very profound in that his speech was severely impacted yeah and so conversations were, were difficult and so how old were you when that, like, what were you doing when this happened? Like, where I, were you in your life? I was aged, um, approximately age 30. Wow. So it was a critical time because his grandchildren, many of his grandchildren had yet to be born. Gosh. The security of the estate hadn't been, hadn't been achieved. Yeah. Um, it really would have been a disaster on many levels had he not yeah. survived. And so point. for you, though, seeing, and like for your, your mother seeing your father go through this and I know your sisters as well you know how was that how was that to have it happen so suddenly as well you know no warning I think the fact it happened suddenly in many respects is probably quite helpful because you just get on with it 
Um, and we're quite a resilient family. So that did help. Yeah. Um, my mother's strength in it was really quite extraordinary. Wow. Um, and I'm sure that she was as much a part of, of the success and everything uh, to my father's survival as actually Mark McGurk. And that yeah. he, she sat there next to him mm. at the hospital night after night, 24 hours a day. Yeah. But every time he opened his eyes, he saw my mother. Yeah. And I think that really was enormously uh, instrumental in his yeah. successful and comforting, recovery. Yeah. 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 It's funny because we've talked with other with, with patients who've talked about their family, you know, their children and their family and how important they are. And um, I think it was Mark Radcliffe who we had on and he was saying, I don't know how people would cope if they were on their own or they didn't have family members. And I know I was bang on this about this about every podcast, but um, for anyone who is going through this or just wants something to talk to, our Facebook support group is immensely helpful for that. Um, just to talk to other people who are going through the same thing or whose pet, you know, it's quite often I have adult children um, contacting me uh, about parents and just want to understand and talk about it. And to talk to somebody who's actually been through it, I think is an, is incredibly powerful. Um, so I would urge anyone, if they are feeling that they would like someone to talk to, to go onto our Facebook uh, group support group which you can find from our, our website the head and neck that's a foundation website um, and go on and, and make some friends there it's a, and really it's gone international now you know we have so many people on there um can I just ask what happened with um grandchildren were there any grandchildren that were sort of old enough to see and understand what was going on there were and I think that was probably one of the most upsetting things for my father but um her his youngest grandchild who would always run up to my father and give him a, a big hug. Uh, and the first time she saw him, you know, it's entirely natural for a yeah. young child aged four or five, yeah. just was horrified and didn't hug my father. And I think oh, that must gosh. have been extremely painful yeah. for my yeah. father. But I'd endorse, Michelle, exactly what you've just said about going onto the Facebook page. And remember, whatever is done to the individual, um, they are the same person underneath. Mm. They're the same human being, however scarred that they might be outwardly. Underneath yeah. it all, they're the same same person as they ever were yeah. before. Yeah. And that, I think, is what one has to remember. Yeah. So um, what was it like? And this is a very personal question, but what, what was it like losing your, your father? Was it, was it oh, did you know it was going to happen or did it? I knew it was going to happen at some point, but it was, I mean, I think about him every single day. It's not something yeah. one forgets. And I think there's an extraordinary sort of, it's a particularly English thing where someone dies and you're expected to sort of be over it, certainly within a year and you move on. Yeah. Um, and although I don't go for the sort of European approach of candles and wailing, yeah, I have no embarrassment to say that every morning I wake up, open my shutters, and I can see my father's grave across the park. Yeah, you know, the only thing that changes is that in the early years you think of it with sadness, and yeah. then you think of events with a smile or even laughter. Yeah, yeah. But um, I see no reason to put someone literally or figuratively in their box. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, and also it's it's very much a part part of who you are isn't it you know it's part of how you are and how you know you you talk about your father so warmly 
and you know the fact that you you've lost him now when you could you could still be having a relationship with him even now there's a loss there but the fact that you can and have fondness thinking of him you know and um and I, I you probably you probably do things like you know what would my dad do in this situation how he would he have dealt with it or whatever you know and I think that's can often be a comfort yes I, I'd entirely endorse that but I think the other thing to remember although my father was 55 or thereabouts when he got the cancer mm. he died at 78 yeah and one must remember that actually it's not a bad life expectancy no. um you know and we all go one day and my father was very philosophical about it he was yeah. never frightened of dying it was how you die yeah um he was very very philosophical about it all and it's the right order of events you know parents go before their children yeah absolutely um, there are many who suffer far worse events yeah. in their life yeah so what would your advice be to somebody um whose family member has been diagnosed or taken even by a cancer I think the first thing is to recognize it's a natural process. It's not like a car accident, which I think in many ways is, is even worse, if that mm. makes sense, because it's an unnatural and violent event. So I think that's the first thing. I think that helps um, to come to terms with it. I think the second thing to do is to talk to the person and just, you know, always leave them on good terms smile have no regrets and I have absolutely no regrets there were however busy I was I went and saw my father mm -hmm. and do you know what that bit of work that I missed or the restaurant I was late for so what none of mm -hmm. that matters 20 years later I have no. zero regrets and yeah. that is perhaps the thing I'm so pleased about yeah yeah, absolutely. That there's not things unsaid or, you know, exactly time yep. not spent. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So right at the beginning, you talked about um, your your bond, really, your family bond with um, with Professor Mark McGurk, who treated your father. So how did that kind of happen? How did that happen? Um, he my father was actually due to see another surgeon, but I think he was about to go on holiday. So mm. we were recommended Mark and my mother and I went to see Mark. And just instantly, we recognized there was someone with extraordinary capability. Mm. Um, also, someone that wasn't afraid of doing what needed to be done. Mm. And someone who just provided immense confidence. And also, uh, he might be surprised to hear this, he had actually an excellent bedside manner. Uh, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I think he'd be very surprised to hear me say that, but he really <laughs> genuinely does. Um, yeah. He 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 answered questions honestly, openly, mm. and you just felt confident. In yeah. Him. And I think the other thing was in those days, you didn't have the internet in the way you do now. So you, thank goodness you didn't start googling things and becoming an instant online professional surgeon. <laughs> you know which I think yeah. is incredibly dangerous you know do you trust this person this is what yeah. they've trained for all their lives do you think they're the right person and if so do it that's it. I think that's key if you think they feel mm. they're the right person and that they're offering you you yeah. know what you need and, and having options and I think Mark is really good at that sort of explaining explaining the detail and why and he does it in a as you say he doesn't do it in a it's his he has great sort of compassion, I suppose, when he's speaking about it and an understanding of the impact that it's having on the person. 
which you know I do speak to lots of surgeons and not all surgeons have that that understanding the ongoing process for the patient you know and and that's why Mark has been so keen about this you know minimizing the surgery for people you know I think a lot of surgeons are kind of like well we're doing it it's working why do we need to do that you know so Mark got to know your family I've kept you what I'm trying to get you to talk about is to talk about I'm not going to tell anyone anything embarrassing but some about your fishing you have a fondness of fishing together don't you Yes, really do enjoy it. And I think, I mean, I think what we both see in the fishing is that we both have pretty high stress um, careers and it really is a wonderful way of relaxing. Yeah. Um, you know, some people watch trash television or listen to music or whatever, um, certainly listen to music, but it's just a real escapism. Yeah. Um, and it's an opportunity to see nature at its best. Yeah. And it puts things somewhat in perspective. Yeah. And I guess it's a good way for you to to uh, there's so much that you've shared, I suppose, through your with your families and uh, with your dad passing your dad's surgery, that it's there's a probably a bond there that that might not have been, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, we both come from entirely different backgrounds and but our interests are very much the same. I think the values are absolutely similar. Yeah. And I think that is probably the most crucial thing. Yeah. Um, right. You know, black is black and white is white yeah. in our world. Yeah. Um, so I think those sort of basic fundamental values towards those around us um, are really one and the same. Yeah. So in terms of the charity, I mean, I'll give you I'll give you a few of our stats here that we've trained um, 43 UK units, surgical units, 21 overseas units and we've launched four new treatments that are innovative and brand new um, and groundbreaking Uh, and we've also got had millions of views on our mouth check video which we know saves lives I know I get calls so I know that that happens so what impact do you think in the time because I think I joined in in 2017 but I think you'd start in 2015 so what do you think well, now we're here in 2022? What's the impact that the charity's made on head and neck cancers? Well, the first point I'd make is that it's a, the, the single thing I'm most proud of. Uh, and I don't take the credit for it. I really don't. It's Professor Mark McGurk's charity. He just asked me to be a chairman in terms of oversight and making sure that we stick to the constitution. And when a difficult decision has to be made, um, then I can help guide that. The impact has been far greater than I ever anticipated. The original objective was to go and train just 20 surgeons in sentinel node biopsy. And we far exceeded that target. And this really will change lives. And I know that's, a, that's a, one of those phrases which is oft overused, but it is really genuinely true. It is changing lives. And many people uh, over the years to come will have no idea that it all stemmed from a chat on a riverbank. Yeah. Um, so I'm really proud of it. I really desperately hope, and the, perhaps the hardest thing is to get people to ch- check their mouths. Yeah. And it's so simple. Buy a torch for $3.99 from a petrol station, put it next to your sink. And I do it the first day of every month, because that way you remember. Mm-hmm. And you just look at your mouth, get to learn what it looks like yeah. in the mirror. Yeah. And the first time I found it quite tricky. So I did it every night for about a week. By the end of it, I was pretty fed up. But you just the, it then got into my memory bank. Yeah. 
And now it's just once a month. I just check and just, does it look like it did last month? Yeah, fine. Exactly. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's just, I always think with this cancer, it's such a, it's such a weird thing because it's in your head. It's like, if you have a toothache, it's all consuming. If you bang your toe, that hurts and it's not great. But if you have a toothache or something going on in your head, it's all consuming. It just, you know, it's terrible. So it's kind of a weird thing that we, don't pay attention you know we talk we eat you know we sing whatever you know why why do we forget to look at this area of our body you know and why are we not why are we not um comfortable with it and knowing what's healthy and I always say if you watch the video just watch and see what does a healthy mouth look like because if you know what a healthy mouth looks like you'll know if something's up you'll know that something's wrong I think the answer to that question Michelle is actually remarkably simple the reason we don't look is that we don't see in public people with head and neck cancers. It's very rare. And the reason is that most people spend the rest of their lives behind net curtains. They don't yeah. come out on the street because it's just too difficult and, uh, for, for them. Mm. Whereas people do check for breast cancer. Yeah. Um, they do check for other forms of cancer. Yeah. But the, but those, but everybody knows people who've had breast cancer. We all know of that. But generally, head and neck cancer patients do not come out in public. Mm. They're not seen. It's a weird thing because you know, for UK males, head and neck cancer is now the fourth most common cancer in the UK. Isn't that amazing? Four is the fourth most common cancer. Gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's 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 huge. So, what are your goals for us in the future? I think to carry on what we're doing, um, which is particularly the awareness as far as I'm concerned, I think that is really particularly important, the awareness and the self-checking. I really think that is really important because without that, um, 50% of everything the charity does is really not a success. So we must continue to promote um, the, the idea that people check their mouths. And it does matter, and it's particularly important as we live longer, mm. um, and therefore are more susceptible to catching these horrific diseases. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been, as always, it's always an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Frederick, and I could talk to you forever. But thank you so much for sharing your time with us and also some really personal stuff about your father. It's actually heartwarming and lovely to hear. And so thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Michelle. For information, support and advice, including how to check your own mouth, Look up hncf.org.uk or follow us on socials, search HNCF.